We're going to continue our study through James. We are going to be finishing up chapter 1 this morning. We left off at verse 12 last week. So if you would, please open your Bibles to James 1, 12. Last week we talked about James introducing himself as a bondservant instead of introducing himself as the half-brother of God, something that I think will lend some further credence to what he tells us later in his letter. He talked about uh, the fact that he was writing to the Jews, the 12 tribes, which refers to the Israelites. So this is our writer, the half-brother of Jesus, and this is who he's writing to, the Jews. He says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That, That various trials is very colored trials. Trials of all different kinds, count it joy when you fall into those. Because trials produce patience, which works in us to produce maturity. That is a completeness or a perfection. He also talked about the rich and the poor. He said that the rich are going to be humbled and the poor are going to be exalted. Both the rich and the poor are reduced to complete equality right at the end. And this week, as we continue through chapter 1, we're going to see that God is good. He is. He gives us good gifts. He does not solicit us to evil or tempt us. And are you a walkie-talkie or a talkie-talkie? You'll see what I mean by that. James chapter 1, verse 12 reads, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Up in verse 12 again, he says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Blessed can also be translated as happy. Happy is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Endures temptation. This is a bearing up under the weight of temptation. And James is switching gears here from talking about trials to actual temptations. And this is this word temptations just means a solicitation to evil. The word in the first part of the chapter for testing, we see that word, that is knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. This word speaks to a proving of something. You're testing it like you test something by fire to see what it's made of. But the word translated temptation literally means this solicitation to evil. And this is something God will never do. He will never tempt us to evil. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So God does not solicit us to evil. 
He is inherently good. There is no evil in him. And his will is that we should not sin. So if he doesn't want us to sin, why would he be tempting us with sin? Well, the answer is he wouldn't. God sends these trials, these very colored trials, to bring out the best in us. Look at Abraham. But Satan sends temptations to bring out the worst in us. God wants to bring out the best in us. Satan wants to bring out the worst. And there are a few possible sources of these temptations that we experience. First one, obviously, is Satan. Satan will come to destroy, lie to you. He will try to damage everything. Um, And his ultimate mission is to keep you out of heaven. He wants to keep you in eternity separated from God. But we often give Satan too much credit. Okay? Satan is not omnipresent. He can only be one place at one time. Uh, We see in the book of Job that Satan tells God he was going back and forth on the earth. He was on the earth. He is now in heaven talking to God. There is a definite place where he was. We often hear people say, oh, the devil made me do it. The devil tempted me to do this. Uh, But is that actually true? Do you know that Satan himself came to Cason and said, Cason, you need to do this and actually used his personal resources to tempt me? I don't think so. I think he's more worried about the Billy Graham characters, the Chuck Smiths of the world. He's not worried about me. So we do give the devil too much credit sometimes, but it is true that maybe he sent one of his little minions after you. Maybe they're trying to wiggle their way into your life. Uh, We would call these demons. And that is more accurate. You know, I could see, there's no telling how many demons there are, um, but it is possible that they are tempting you. They're wiggling their way into your life. But even then, sometimes we give them too much credit. Because look at this verse, verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So yes, demons can tempt you. Sure, Satan can tempt you. But really, we're at war with our flesh, truly. And I believe that most of the temptations that we have to come up against stem from ourselves, not demons, not Satan, ourselves. The majority of these solicitations to sin are our own desires trying to draw us away from our safety and entice us to sin. The old man that we have to deal with constantly wants to pop back up in our lives. We know that in Christ, we have put away that old man and we have become a new creation in him. But that old man is still clawing and scratching, trying to get back to the surface. He wants control that he can't have. So every day, we have to crucify the flesh. We have to make a decision, okay? It is a daily decision that we are going to live according to the Spirit. 
The old man has been put away, and the new man, which lives after the Spirit, is now in charge. But our flesh is constantly warring, trying to take over again. We have to crucify that and live for the Spirit. Verse 14 says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. That drawn away and enticed are hunting terms. This would conjure up a picture of a hunter tracking down a deer, trying to lure him out of the brush, or a fisherman, you know, dangling his worm in front of the bass's nose in the minds of the Jews. And since I'm a little bit more of a fisherman than I am a hunter, I think of a fish, and I think of myself laying that bait down in front of the fish I want to catch, jiggling it just a little bit, making it look enticing. That enticing bait draws the fish out of where he's hiding, out of his safety, and allows me to lay hold of him. Now, there are a few reasons that a bass may bite your artificial lure, your bait. Um, As a tournament angler way back when, uh, we were not allowed to use live bait. We had to use artificial baits to catch our fish in tournaments. So there are a few reasons that a bass would actually bite something that was not his real food. The first is out of curiosity. A bass doesn't have arms, so they can't pick something up and look at it and feel it. They go up to it, they, they nose up to it, and then they just take it in their mouth for just a second and spit it out. That's a curiosity bite. Sometimes that is what happens to us with sin. We're curious about it. I wonder what would happen if I did do that. I wonder how that would feel. So we just nibble at it a second. Before we know it, the hook is set and we're caught. That's the first kind of bite. The second bite is an actual feeding response. Sometimes these bass will school with the bait fish in the middle of the lake. And they'll be popping at the surface, you know, chasing them down and actually trying to eat. Uh, This is a different kind of bite, and this is a feeding reaction from the bass. Some people will actually go into the world looking for sin, looking for places to stick their nose in where they know they shouldn't be. And I'm not necessarily talking about a believer for this one. Uh, You know people will go out on the town just looking for trouble. Uh, And that is what I'm seeing as this kind of feeding response. They will take sin intentionally and ingest it, rhetorically, of course. The third kind of bite that I want to talk about, and this is the kind that verse 15 outlines for us, it's a reaction bite. If you catch a bass off guard with a fast-moving lure, Sometimes they'll just spin around and attack it. And this is dangerous for them because they don't even have to think about what they're doing. They don't have time to see, oh, that's not real. I'm not going to eat that. But it's a reaction. Okay, so let's look at verse 14 and then through 15. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, 
brings forth death. So first, they are drawn away from their safe place and enticed by their own desires. Then, when that desire has conceived, or literally to take hold together, it's a bringing together of things. The desire has brought them together with opportunity. It brings forth or gives birth to sin. And the maturing point of sin is death. Think about the reaction bite this way. There's this one guy that you just hate. Every time you think about him, you think, man, I'm going to show him what's, what's up next time I see him. I'm going to give him a right hook, give him a knee to the groin, and then finish him with a kick to the temple. You play that scenario over and over in your mind every time you think about this guy. Till one day, months or years later, you round the aisle at HEB, and there he is. You don't even have to think about it. Your body just reacts. Boom, right hook. Boom, knee to the groin. Boom, kick to the temple. Before you know it, the HEB employees are tackling you to the ground, calling security on you. And you did not even have to think about it. You had played that scenario over so many times in your head that you just reacted. You didn't have to act. You just reacted. This is a dangerous place to put ourselves in. We don't have time to recognize what we're doing. We just bite. And that can be, you know, expounded to all different kinds of sin. You know, lust. If you constantly see this woman, you think what it would be like to be with her. You rehearse this over and over in your mind when an opportunity to play that out actually presents itself it's a reaction. You know, anger, we talked about, bitterness, greed, everything, every type of sin can work this way. The whole thing was just a reaction to this guy that you hate. You essentially hardwired your brain to react in the way that you did. You told it what to do when you saw him. This isn't to say that we don't have crazy thoughts that run through our mind. We can't avoid that. One thought, one time, can't avoid. But what we can do is take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We don't have to nurture and nurse those thoughts into conception, into bringing forth sin and then death. Martin Luther actually said, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. And that is exactly what we're talking about. Some things you just can't avoid, but you can um, pay careful attention to how those thoughts are affecting you. You have to give a thought place in your mind before it can affect you. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth 
that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Verse 16 and 17 tell us God gives us good things. He is good to us. It talks about God as being the father of lights and having no shadow of turning. And these terms make us think of celestial bodies, stars, the sun, also a star, planets, you know, asteroids, this kind of idea. Shadow of turning talks about a rotating of a celestial body. So if we think about the earth, as it rotates, you have one side of the earth is lit up by the sun. The other side is darkened because it gets no light from the sun. There is a variation. There's a change in that shadow of turning. God has no shadow of turning because he doesn't rotate. He doesn't change. He is inherently constant. The beginning and the end, constant forever. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of his own will, he brought us forth. It's easy to skip over that when you're reading through James. But if you really think about that, the implications are extensive. God, knowing everything, chose to bring us forth, to create us, bring us into existence, knowing that Adam would fall, knowing that his perfect creation would be corrupted, yet he still chose to do so. He loved us enough to calculate the cost in his mind to redeem us. The cost was his son. He counted you worthy of that cost. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Verse 19, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Wise, wise words. Slow to speak, swift to hear, one mouth, two ears. I don't remember regretting anything that I didn't say, but I can tell you a lot that I regret saying. It is wise for us to listen twice as much as we speak. My beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Wrath here also means anger, vengeance, or indignation. God doesn't need us to get angry with an unbeliever to help him. He does not need that. He does not want that. Another translation of wrath is vengeance. Too often we try to exact our own vengeance, our own revenge, on someone who we think deserves it. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, 
not you. It's not our job to seek vengeance. And we see in the text, it does not produce the righteousness of God. Not only is it not our job, but it doesn't accomplish the end we want to accomplish. And besides that, I don't have all of the knowledge necessary to come to a fair settlement for someone who has wronged me. I don't know their side of the story. And if I did, it wouldn't be a complete knowledge of that side of the story. God knows both sides of the story and all the peripheral stories that surround it. He also knows the intentions of that person and your intentions. So be careful. He has the knowledge necessary to make a fair and true judgment. My anger does not promote God's righteousness. We saw Moses struck the rock. The second time they needed water, God said, you've already struck it once. It doesn't need to be struck again. Just speak to the rock and it will give you water. Well, Moses was frustrated and he went out and he smacked that rock. He represented God as being angry to the people of Israel. When in fact, God was not angry with them. He was providing for them. But they didn't know that because Moses did not represent God well. It was quite a consequence, too, for Moses. He couldn't enter the promised land. But that goes to show that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, so in light of these last couple of sentences, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. This is one of those times when the Bible says, don't do this. Instead, do this. We see it over and over. The Bible says, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. And instead of turning your attention towards those things, I want you to receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Cast off the things that come from the, pl- the flesh and receive the implanted or engrafted word. This implanted word means nothing more than the gospel that was once presented to these Jews. Uh, the implanted word, engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. James may be referring back to the parable of the sower in this instance. He's encouraging his readers to be fertile soil for the word to take root in. If our hearts are hardened, the word will have no opportunity to take root and from there to grow. In other words, James is commanding us to pluck the weeds and plant the seeds. Take out the things after the flesh, implant the word. Pluck the weeds and plant the seed. Verse 22 reads, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, 
and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. The Wiest translation, uh, Kenneth Wiest, a Greek scholar, translates verse 22 as, keep on becoming doers of the word and stop being hearers only, reasoning yourselves into a false premise and thus deceiving yourselves. With these tenses expanded, we can see that James was commanding the Jews he was writing to to stop being hearers only. This means that they were being hearers only. They were not doing what the word told them to do. They had the knowledge, but there was no application. There was no fruit of that in their lives. This is the key error that James writes to them to address. Being hearers only, just having the knowledge, but not actually doing anything about it. They thought that simply having the law was good enough. In their minds, they were very privileged, and they were privileged. They were God's chosen people, and they were the people through whom God made his law known and would eventually bring his son into the world. They were privileged, but just having the law of God was not enough. They had to actually do what God had commanded. James is urging them not to stop at just hearing, but he pushes them on to doing. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. So now James is comparing the word of God to a mirror. The word of God brings to light how we look on the inside, but a mirror brings to light how we look on the outside. It's a similar kind of a thing. When we compare ourselves to the example set by Christ and recorded in the word of God, we see ourselves as God sees us. This allows us to examine our hearts, to confess our sins, to pick out the things that need to be weeded out. So James commanded us to weed out things of the flesh. Now he's telling us how we can do that. Okay? You be doers of the word. You can see yourself through God's eyes. You can see, hmm, this part of my life is not Christ-like, and that needs to be weeded, plucked out, and replaced with something that is according to his word. If we look into the mirror, you wake up in the morning, we'll say this, you come home from work, you look in the mirror, your face is nasty. You got dirt, maybe some grease, oil on your face. Then you turn around and walk out of the bathroom. You do nothing about it. What good has that mirror done you? Not a bit. You have to actually do something once it's brought to your attention. So you walk into the bathroom, look at the mirror. I'm disgusting. So I get a wash rag, some soap, clean myself up. 
It's the same idea here. The word only has a tangible effect on us when we see we're dirty and we do something about it. If you see that your heart is dirty, clean it up. Take those things to God and repent of them. Now verse 25, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Now verse 25 tells us we must gaze carefully, not glance casually into the word of God. Read it, study it, meditate on it, and see yourself through its lens. Then we must obey what the word says. And again, I'll remind you that blessed can also be translated as happy. It's not the reading of the word that makes the believer happy. It's the obeying of the word that makes the believer happy. Apply the lessons you learn from reading your Bible to your life. Some things are extremely straightforward and easy to apply. Like, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. I can read that and directly apply it to my life almost immediately. Some things take a little more digging to uncover. But the applying of all these things to our lives does actually make us happy. God's plan is the best way to do things. And we know what God wants for our lives by reading his word. If he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. 25, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed or be happy in what he does. 26, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Very straightforward. Verses 22 through 25 speak to the believer's private life, his prayer life, his time spent alone with God, reading his word. Verses 26 and 27 describe our public life that everyone else sees. The Greek word for religious here in verse 26 means the outward practice of religion. The Bible doesn't actually call the Christian faith a religion. Did you know that? It is a miracle. It's a new birth and it's a divine life, but the Bible never calls Christianity a religion. If any man imagines himself to be religious, then let him prove it by the life he lives. This is exactly what James is telling us. In verse 27, James outlines the characteristics of pure religion. Self-control through a bridled tongue, love for others, and a clean life. He says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted 
from the world. The word visit, uh, visit orphans and widows in their trouble, means care for, care for them. Jesus did. Jesus absolutely cared for the orphans, cared for the widows. The down and out, the people that maybe passed up on the street, Jesus cared for them. Visit orphans, care for orphans and widows in their trouble. It suggests a sacrificial care for those who are in need. True religion is not a matter of forms and ceremonies, rites, practices. It's a matter of a controlled tongue, a sacrificial service, and a clean heart. James uses the word perfect several times in chapter 1. In verses 1 and 2, we have God's perfect work. In verses 13 through 20, we have God's perfect gift. And in verses 20 through 27, we have God's perfect law. God's perfect work is his purpose to mature us. His perfect gift is his goodness to us in times of testing. And his perfect law is the word that strengthens and sustains us. So as we do move into a a new week, we've got new challenges ahead of us, Um, new experiences, new people to interact with. Let us be doers of the word and not hearers only. We should be seeking ways to mature in our walks with Christ. And I hope that you're seeing the aspect of maturity here in James as we go through, because this is really the main point that I want to bring out. James is giving us some real nuggets on how a mature Christian should look. Uh, So I hope you're you're gleaning some of that. Uh, But we need to be seeking ways to mature in our walks with Christ. One of the ways we can mature is by actually doing what we read in Scripture. So I would encourage everybody to read, first of all, but don't stop there. Continue on. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. We're going to close our study this morning right there, and we'll pick up in chapter 2 next week for Resurrection Sunday. Uh, We hope that you can join us next week. It is going to be a bit of a special service as we partake of communion together as a church, and I hope that you can make it. So let's close in a word of prayer this morning.